Welcome to If You've Come This Far. This is Sean. Uh, this is a podcast where my friend Chris and I aim to have authentic conversations with people that we think are interesting about what they do to make life more fulfilling and more impactful. And in this episode, we're talking to one of Chris's good friends, and she is doing some really interesting things. Why don't we tell the listeners about Becky? Yeah, yeah, Sean, thanks. So, uh, yeah, this episode which we recorded ah, I got a month ago, maybe before you went on um, sort of a, a big vacation abroad. Um, so it's been a while, but uh, we, we spend time with my friend, Becky Crow and Becky's interesting for many reasons. Uh, I mean, to start, and we cover some of this ground in our conversation with her, but she swam for Stanford in the early nineties. I think that Stanford team won the national championship at least three of the four years she was there. If well, they did, she was an All-American and she was the captain of the team. All-American, yeah. captain yeah. as a senior. Yeah. She went on, I think it was the 96 Olympic trials. She swam at those. Didn't miss mm. making the Olympic team by by much. Right. Um, and then uh, I think, at, at, well, after hanging up her goggles, she's, uh, she's proceeded to spend over two and a half decades uh, working to make education better and more equitable in this country. Yeah. So, you know, just an interesting person, interesting athletic background, which always appeals to to, to you and me, um, but but has spent her professional career um, trying to make more meaning in life. And, and really, the reason we got her on is because of something she did this past summer, uh, where which isn't been... which which really means she didn't hang up her goggles, maybe, maybe, oh, competitively, but she didn't really hang them up. I mean, right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, she, yeah. Swimming is still very important to her identity, yes. and, and now she's doing this other work. Where I, I guess we, it's not, we're not going to spoil it. We're going to get into it here shortly. Yeah, but yeah. She yeah. she was teaching swim lessons to refugees in Greece this summer, um, and uh, just to really, uh, I'll save it for the conversation. But I, I was kind of blown away while she was over there and texting us, and then when she told us the story. Yeah, that was her summer. My summer, I was drinking wine and eating food. So, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not. Yeah. Well, we're all in different stages of life, and yeah, and he was. You know, she explained she was she and her son were paying close attention to the refugee story, um, and 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 she talks about how she was kind of searching for something too. A little she bit, did, so. yeah, yeah. She's very she, a, a wonderful woman, and and you've known her since business school, right? Uh, no. Um, no. so in her 25 plus years of, of, of working in education, uh, she ended up co-founding a nonprofit with Manisha. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, and that's so, right. right. That's how, I, that's how I met her. So I guess I've known Becky for 15 <laughs> of those years or so. So that's a good one. So time. for the listeners, this is why we should do our intros right after the, the interview, because we don't remember shit or I don't anyways. It's funny. I feel like uh, both of us are, are are struggling. We would just as soon press play on the damn interview, which was actually yeah. really good. Unlike our right. intro. I, right well, the listeners would probably listen to it. Hey, just come on. Yeah, let's get to it then, shall we? Here we go. Oh my gosh. It's my friend, Becky Crow. <laughs> what a treat. Hello. What is up? How are you? I'll rename myself for Zoom in case you, you know, get <laughs> Becky, let me introduce you to my dear friend, Sean Emerson. Sean, this Hi, is Becky. My... It's great to meet you. Yeah, it's thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Becky, you may I love have what you guys are doing. Uh, yes, both individually and collectively. So it's fun. we have a good time. 
Um, you noticed probably when you joined that we're already recording. Is that, did you catch that? I didn't, but that's great to know. Yeah, there's, there's, if, 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 if either of us say anything stupid, we edit it out, but you need to be careful because we can't make that same guarantee. <laughs> wait, wait, if we say something stupid, when, when we say, when something, we say stupid. something stupid, <laughs> yeah, so there's a little bit of that that goes on. Right. <laughs> All right. So can I start? Can I start? So Becky, when I knew we were, we were going to talk to you, I'm like, okay, we got to start with this. So for the listeners, we'll probably say this in the intro. Yeah. Um, and let make sure I get this right. National Championship swim team at Stanford. You were the captain of the swim team. You're an All-American swimmer. Uh, I got to know all this Pac-12 shit that's happening. Um, you know, what? I, because they talk about uh, the, the non-primate, well, the not, I don't want to say this wrong. Non-football, non-football sports, yeah. non-football yeah, sports. They're like, okay, you know, <laughs> who really cares about these athletes? But at Stanford, you won like 22 out of 23 director cups, right? Which are the the uh, primary or the best Winning athletic departments. College, right. yeah, college program right. in the country. Yeah. And now you have no, well, I guess you have a home, pack, the Pac-12 still, but it's the Pac-4. And so what are you thinking about all this shit that's happening i i mean i love that the implosion of the pac-12 is where we're starting the purpose conversation (laughs) (laughs) i i was telling chris i you know my my headline on this is just that uh i really valued being a student athlete and it it was equal parts if not more student than athlete even though we had a lot of success athletically And frankly, I just cannot imagine. I mean, it was already enough to be swimming 25 to 30 hours a week and traveling to, you know, to Southern California or to Arizona, but to get across the country and try to maintain the focus on academics, I think is, um, is really, really outrageous. And and it takes away some of these amazing rivalries, like the, the absolute, you know, joy of beating USC is uh, right. you know, <laughs> off the table until NC2As. So. <laughs> right. I, I, I remember, I think I saw a stat that said um, in the last Olympics, um, Stanford and Cal and Cal would have had the second most medal count behind the United States or something like that, based on the athletes that, that are at those two schools. And now they're without a home kind of because of football. I mean, I'm a football player. I, I mean, I love football, but what's happening to college athletics is, is a little goofy. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be really hard on the athletes and uh, we'll see where it, where it shakes out, but the pack four doesn't sound like a lot of fun. No, (laughs) I mean, seriously, like the rest of the country kind of like dismisses the West coast. Uh, I mean, not, not that you all aren't good at stuff. Like you're great at stuff, but we've already established that, but like the, the rest of the country doesn't want to hear anything more about the West coast. And so the pack four is definitely not going to grab anyone's attention in Ohio, put it that way. Um, Becky, so I've known you for a long time and you talked about the importance of being a college athlete. I'm just, it just occurs to me, like how much of your identity is, is tied to, to your athletic life? Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a great question. I think it was really highly tied for a lot of years. And uh, I think what I've been reflecting on, I turned 50 this year. And so it's been a, a lot of reflection, <laughs> a lot of different fronts, but one of the things has been just thinking about uh, what are those 
formative experiences that really shaped the way I think about the world. And I think uh, when I think about my identity as an athlete, it wasn't about um, the championships or the, you know, it was really fundamentally about the mindset that we had of going after a goal really hard for a lot of years with a lot of tenacity and and how that shaped my life and actually created some things that I've needed to unlearn as well mm. in the last uh, last decade or so for my own physical and mental health that uh, that frame can be really helpful and serve serve a person well in many cases. And then there's places where it just, you know, that it, it doesn't um, serve in healthy ways. So I think I've, I've been thinking a lot about that. And, you know, we'll get to talking about the experience in Greece this summer. But I think something that's been really incredible is seeing how, after all these years, uh, my relationship with swimming is still so strong and it's evolving and uh, is actually one of the most uh, joyful and incredible things that I'm engaged with right now. And and uh, that I don't think has a lot to do with being an athlete per se, but what the swimming experience has done for my life. Ooh, I'm curious about some of those things that um, you felt you've had to unlearn. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the hardest one is... Um, is this idea that for something to be worth doing, you have to be essentially crawling across the finish line at the end. Mm-hmm. That you have to be, uh, if you're not completely depleted and leaving it all in the field or in the pool or in the weight room, that uh, that somehow it wasn't, uh, you didn't put all of your energy and uh, in focus into it. And I think that, uh, you know, that just leads to <laughs> a never-ending unwinnable um, game in, in sports and in life as well. And I think that's been the biggest one, like yeah. learning how to rest, frankly. That's great. So that's kind of like good enough. I mean, you can, there is a good enough and you can be okay with that um, rather than carrying around like, well, I didn't complete it. And now uh, I'm living with that rather than letting it go. And also there's um, both good enough and also there's there's other sources of energy than this um, striving, hardcore, you know, bang out 10, 300 butterflies in a workout or something Jeez. like this, you know, <laughs> um, that there, there are other sources of strength and clarity to draw on that are, um, you know, more mindful, more calm um mm-hmm. and actually more you know regenerating in terms of sort of endless energy what, what is the power source that we can really draw on that um isn't so depleting and i think mm-hmm. being able to realize that i can actually do some of my very best work from that powerhouse um and power source is is a huge awakening for me that's great yeah it's it's funny. First of all, did you already turn fifty? Did I miss your birthday, or did I? I, I did. I turned uh, I turned fifty in early March. So, <laughs> uh, if I didn't wish you a happy birthday via text or some other technical means, I, I'm, I'm happy sure you did. I felt I felt the birthday love. <laughs> okay, good. So it it may please you to know that you're in the company. Well, you know that I'm a little bit older than you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Here we Sean, go again. Sean, Sean, we, I, already? <laughs> no, no, but I'm You I'm want to bring to, it up again? No, no, I'm getting to a point. I'm getting to a point oh, here. All right. Um, I'm not going to. No, I, it's honestly, okay. I honestly, turned 60 in, at the end of June. 
That is so awesome. You would way. never know, right? You would never in a million You would never years know, know. And I'm actually more excited about 60 now than I ever imagined I would be. So that, that'll be another story. But <laughs> well, yeah. and, and here's the reason, here's the reason I bring up age again is because honestly, I feel myself, I, I find myself thinking increasingly about mortality and about, you know. I mean, not to go to a dark place here, but, but, you know, you start to do the math if you're someone who lives in, in your head, like I do. And you're like, okay, well, there aren't that many more. I, I reposted this thing. Um, this guy, John McCaskill, who's a mindfulness, former Navy SEAL posted the other day. I don't know if you saw it, Sean, it was on, I think it was on LinkedIn, but it was this Eddie Murphy spiel. He's like 75 years. You know, if you're lucky, you'll get 75 years and every second counts and yada, yada. And so I, I find myself doing that math. And I think when you talk about, uh, what is it? Type A personalities, like I think probably the three of us are, you're like, oh, I want to be excellent at everything. And there's got to be a give and take at some point, because you only have a so many years, so many hours in a day, so much energy to give. And you're like, okay, I can give everything I got to my job. If I'm willing to forsake my kids, or my wife, or my friends, or my bluegrass, or my golf game, or whatever. So, so I don't know if that if that if you guys find yourself doing the same calculus, I'd let I, Becky absolutely. go first. I think about, I, I mean, I've been thinking to some degree about, about legacy, but really, um, <laughs> really about the way I've described it is 50 of is this frontier to think about. And I had a really rough kind of dark patch coming into 50 and really questioning what I wanted to be doing and um, what is highest and best use of of time and purpose and it sounds it sounds cliche but it <laughs> was real for me and um i i got a helpful reframe from a friend that was essentially thinking about you know what if if this is a threshold what are the threads that you want to pull through from the first first half mm. of life god willing and um and you know what are those things that uh in marie kondo style you can thank them for their service but uh you know put them <laughs> put them away. And, you know, you served me well for this, this first 50 years, but um, I'm going to try on a different, a different angle here. And so I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of just the intentionality of how I want to be living in this time and, and uh, what the world's calling on us to do. And um, it's actually now that I've done some of that rejiggering, it's been an incredibly, um, both illuminating and motivating place to be. Yeah, it's funny. The, I mean, the word purpose does come up in our podcast from time to time. I don't think the word legacy comes up that much, but 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 it's. It, it, can you say more about your thinking on that as you cross this fifty threshold? <laughs> I think I. So Chris knows I have a a seventeen year old who's going to be soon to be eighteen and off to college or life adventures gap year who knows uh next year but um but i've been thinking a lot about when i think legacy i don't think about names on buildings but i think about what are the values that mason is going to be able to express as he walks through the world and um you know are those high integrity values within himself and can he walk through life with this sense of intention and and purpose and uh 
I think uh, that's been on my mind and in my worst moments, it's a, it's a, it feels a little frantic, like the time is ticking and I've got to make sure I pack in all these life lessons before. And, and those are definitely our, our worst days together when I'm feeling oh. the time clock ticking. <laughs> but our best days are where we're, we're both um, playing into that in a really peaceful way. And I think that's, yeah, that's how I think about it. Mm. Yeah. Is, is there is there any is there any time when you're thinking like particularly talking about Mason that you've done what you can do and now at some level it's kind of all right yeah. I, I you know I did what I could do and now it's kind of up to him to move forward and see where he goes I am getting I had that is my that is my work this year is that that practice of yeah sitting back and trusting and giving him some tools when and some wisdom when it's uh, when it makes sense, but really trusting that that it's embedded in there, and he's got to make his own mistakes yeah. and have his, his yeah. stumbles, and yeah, we're really, what you've done thus far is good enough. Again, good enough, and it, uh, is, and, it, it literally yeah. maps right onto that. Like grind yeah. through. If I'm not, you know, with him to the finish line in this way, and I just I've got to release that and um, and trust that you know he is a a fully formed, awesome human who's going to find his way and and Mm -hmm. I'll be there to support him. Well, I I feel like that's, it it also is related to another pattern that I suspect that you two also as type A overachievers have, which is like, uh, I'm going to control everything. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power. And if I do everything in my power, then I can have a lot of control over everything. Parenting is certainly one of those areas where it's like, you know, you, you, you know, you gotta let go at some point and you can't control everything and there's nature, there's nurture, and then there's probably some other force that's beyond our control. Um, we're going to come back to your swimming career, um, (laughs) at some point, Becky, but, but, um, when you talk about the pressure you feel to parent Mason and to set him on the path to espouse the right values and everything else, um, you, you made this decision recently to, to spend a month away from him. Um, and I think that's seven really got, weeks, to be exact, but who's counting, weeks. Right? <laughs> right. So that's a trade-off that you made. Um, but maybe we can, maybe you can sort of explain to, to us. Uh, I know a little bit, Sean knows a little bit, our listeners don't know anything about w- what this decision was and what you went to do. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, so so just as context, I, I was leading uh, an education organization here in Denver um, through before COVID, through COVID. Uh, it was a, you know, a really incredible experience, incredible moment to be in that seat, but also um, incredibly depleting and stressful, um, caring for uh, 200 staff members and 500 families in Denver um, who were really seeing the hardest uh, hardest aspects of COVID. And um, and I came out of that just needing to recharge. So uh, so last uh, last summer, I actually took the summer off. This is um, the summer of 2022. For the first time, I, I never took a break between college more than a week. I think before I started my first job, I've never taken a long, you know, backpack around kind of find yourself trip. And um, and so Mason and I took off for six weeks last summer and basically couch surfed our way around uh, international friends' uh, homes and uh, 
just had an incredible experience and it was really an intentional move to, uh, and such a gift and privilege, obviously, to be able to do that, but, you know, we rented out our house and, you know, went nomadic for, um, for six weeks and, and, uh, really, I think reconnected with each other, got to, you know, learn each other again after a really stressful few years and, you know, all the way to the point where we're driving across the cornfields of Iowa and I was about ready to <laughs> to send him out of the car. And he said, mom, you know, it's an unnatural act to be within four feet of the same person for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so, I tell my wife yeah, that. We had an awesome, <laughs> awesome trip, notwithstanding the, the cornfield moment. But, um, but that's all to say that, you know, that was our summer last summer. It was this sort of summer of reconnection and then this summer, um, he had a few adventures that he was going to do with his school and um, and things he wanted to pursue. And I definitely wanted to go um, have this particular experience in Greece, which I'll talk more about. But um, but Mason was hilarious because we ended up being apart seven weeks. And uh, he said, well, mom, you know, this is our practice for empty nesting. So, oh. so we did. Oh, we practiced yeah. empty nesting. And uh, I think I think we got an A. I think we did really well. No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think I've been telling everybody about this conversation we're going to have today and about what you did. So, so maybe let's can we get right into that? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So the headline is: I went to uh, to Greece to the island of Lesbos um, for a month to volunteer at an organization called Yoga and Sport with Refugees, which is an NGO that has been operating for about five years on the island of Lesbos, um, providing uh, sports and a boxing gym, weightlifting gym, and uh, and recently a swimming program for refugees who are living in a refugee camp there. And I went to uh, teach swimming, develop a swimming coaching program, um, make a bunch of swimming videos in Arabic and Farsi, um, and we taught about 85 people, uh, adults to learn to swim. And I'll share more context about why that was so profound, but, um, but that's, that's the headline. And so how did you, how did you find out about the program? How'd you get introduced to it? Yeah, this is, I mean, <laughs> Google, <laughs> it's Ooh. a really, it's yeah. a deep answer, um, <laughs> So uh, yeah, is there there's some opposite of the dark web? It's like the bright web where you find you know volunteer <laughs> opportunities on the other side of the earth. But um, so I I had been following actually both Mason and I had been following the refugee crisis um, since 2015 2016 when uh, you know nearly a million Syrians moved uh, out of out of Syria and many of whom went to Greece and. Um, and where I was in Lesbos, just to put this in context, you know, folks can check out a, a map or a globe, but uh, Lesbos is in the North Aegean Sea, and it's about a 12 kilometer, seven mile um, distance off the coast of Turkey, off, to, off of Ivalic, Turkey. Um, and that is one of the closest islands to Turkey. So, and it is... Um, Greece is obviously in the EU. So if you're uh, a migrant or a refugee dis displaced person, we can talk about the terms, but um, uh, one of the most common migrant paths is essentially the journey is to come to Turkey and then uh, try to get to the EU by um, crossing the, the water to get to Greece. Ah, uh, okay. 
So, yeah. so the different turn. So, the different terms you said we could talk yeah. about the different terms. So, what what would be the distinctions between refugee, migrant, displaced? Yeah, it's and I don't profess to be an expert here, but I think that um, it is actually really important for us to think about you know where where these terms have meaning and where they are labels that aren't serving us well. And I think our southern border is a whole whole conversation about this as well. But in in the on the planet right now, there's about 110 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their their homes, which you know could be because of religious persecution or political persecution, um, war, conflict, you name it. But essentially their home becomes unlivable. Um, 110 people on the move, uh, 110 million people on the move. And of those about 35 million or 40 million, and I think these numbers are underreported, but are considered refugees, which means they've crossed an international border in that displacement process. And so- um, so people are coming to Greece to seek asylum, and basically the first stop on your um, the first stop in Europe essentially is where you need to stay until you're granted that next step in the asylum process. So, okay. so Lesbos was um, an island of eighty five thousand people um, that literally had hundreds of thousands of people in 2015, 2016. Um, crossing often by rafts that were marginally floating and, uh, you know, really treacherous, um, treacherous cross to get there. And uh, I mean, as Chris knows, like a seven mile swim, it's a long swim, but for a strong swimmer, like that's a swimmable distance, you know, that's a decent workout on a good day in college. And, um, and so, so being in Lesbos this summer and seeing the coast of Turkey right there and knowing that, you know, even at age 50, I could swim that distance if I needed to tomorrow and realizing that literally thousands of people are not only crossing, but losing their lives, um, drowning in that, that, uh, attempt to, you know, find basically political stability, a job ability to raise your family in safety and, and be able to send some money back home is, um, is really stunning. And, um, and so I, <laughs> I've literally been tracking on this refugee situation. I've been thinking about the water crossings and just, and also thinking about the, um, I do some coaching of adult women here in Denver. And I think a lot about the, um, like so many things in our American society, access to swimming Mm -hmm. has been, you know, one of the many things that sits in our, in our racial, you know, essentially racial structural racism context. And so, Mm There's a lot of people in America and around the world who've never learned to swim, and it's a life and death issue. And uh, so I said, I said, I wonder if anybody is teaching refugees to swim. And I literally Googled refugee and swimming, and and the first thing that popped up was this NGO. So that's wow. that's a long uh, winding road to how I found my way to Lesbos. So, so before we get past it, though, I just want to I just want to say you made swimming seven miles sound like a no-brainer I like know. a layup oh Ridiculous. well seven miles well i mean yeah <laughs> right becky like, sent me a text <laughs> becky sent me a text at one point describing the 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 the, the length from <clears throat> from turkey to greece is l- less than 10 kilometers <laughs> And I'm like, I would never frame it like that. I would frame it as more than six miles. And by the way, I get nervous anything over one mile and it's open water, et cetera. But um, dumb question, but 
are you know you mentioned the marginally floating rafts yeah. is anyone truly attempting to swim that whole length um i actually met some people who swam it this summer which was Jeez. extraordinary um i met a, a man named Ahmet from palestine who um swam and i mean it's an incredible story he actually said he stopped to smoke in the middle of it which kind of blew <laughs> oh my, my mind like, that is so bad smoke break smoke smoke break that's crazy i mean he's like i kept it in my little dry bag floated on my back for a little while it's like oh my god this is this is a story but um no, but he actually, he got to, um, he got, he made it and he, um, he's someone who had had his, uh, three best friends in his car killed in a, in a bomb. And, mm -hmm. uh, he, he was in the car and made it. And, uh, he said, you know, there's not anything left for me here. So, um, so he made the crossing and he was picked up by the Greek police and put on a ferry back to Turkey and, in prison for a little while and um the average number of crossings for uh the folks who are living in the camp in lesbos is it typically takes people seven or eight times to um to to make the crossing um either because of uh what they call pushbacks which is coast guards and others turning the boats back um or getting apprehended or the boats not making it so um, but yes, this he is now um, doing well in, in Athens, and uh, he has an amazing story to tell. So he he did it again, and he made it the second time. I I loosely committed last night to to getting out onto Lake Michigan this morning at six a.m. with a couple of teammates, including my swim coach. Manisha and May got back from England last night, um, and then of course they were wide awake at five thirty this morning. And they wanted my <laughs> Ready time, to swim and so with you. <laughs> yeah, well, it was a good out. But but what I said in my text last night to my coach Billy and my teammate Alex was like, "Are you crazy people going to go out and swim like two or three miles? Because I haven't been in the water much." And and so I, I I am a good swimmer, and I'm legitimately intimidated by any open water, let alone when you when you leave the coast, right? I'm swimming along the coast. Yeah. And I guess the point is, these people have reasons that we can't even comprehend for attempting right. something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think you can imagine if, you know, if your home had just been bombed and your daily life is under threat, your kids are under threat, like... Mm. It, it becomes not even a choice anymore. you know, it, it is the thing you need to do. And so then the question becomes how to do it. And there's, you know, every one of the routes is, has, you know, enormous danger connected to it. And, uh, you know, I heard some people's stories, a lot of people, one of the policies and approaches from a trauma-informed standpoint is you don't ask people their stories. They share them when they feel comfortable and if they mm. feel comfortable. But um, so I have sort of, uh, you know, anecdotes and a, a tapestry of different um, stories from people as I got to know them. But uh, it's 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 unimaginable. And I think uh, for, for all of it, many of us. And, uh, and I also think then at the end of it, I, you know, um, at least coming into this country, you know, being in, you know, considered an illegal crossing, et cetera, it really makes you start to question um, 
borders, their purpose, how we respond to this, and and frankly, what what's going to happen as climate change continues to make you know a huge uh, part of this world really unlivable. Um, uh, it, we've got big issues. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. we can get and, to the joyful part of this too, I promise. But um, but it does put it in context in terms of what's driving people to leave. So when you say that he he you know it takes a few times before they they make it. I mean he got he he got to Greece. So what's different? What what's different the second time that allowed him to be able to stay? Yeah, it's. I mean, as as you might imagine, like the politics around all of this, the complexity of this, the um, Greek government had an election while I was there that um, elected their. Uh, farthest right um, coalition. And so Mm -hmm. there's an enormous anti-immigrant sentiment and uh, policies that are following that sentiment. And that's true in much of the EU right now. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so if you get apprehended by the Greek police, you're most likely to get, I'm oversimplifying, but to be sent back, if you um, essentially can get to the camp, um, you can uh, okay. Asylum process, and and sometimes okay. that means you know finding a variety of people who would be sympathetic to that, or folks from the UN. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Becky, technically, the, the the you were mostly working with women on these women lessons, or was it exclusively women? No, it was both men and women. Actually, I, I wasn't sure going into it what. <laughs> you know, what it was going to be. The typical volunteer, this organization runs with uh, essentially uh, three staff members in Lesbos, and they have a few other sites as well in Athens and a place called Yanana, and also in Paris now to help people with the resettlement process as they're moving on in their journey. But um, but, yeah, maybe I'll say just a minute about the organization. Would that be? Sure. Yeah, please. Yeah. It's a it's a super cool story, but I have um, enormous respect for uh, Estelle, who's the executive director. She's in her early 30s, and five years ago, she's French, and she was on Lesbos um, and made made a friend uh, who is an Afghan um, uh, refugee there. And she's an athlete, and they started working out together. And uh, he said, "I'll teach you boxing, and if you'll teach me some English and." She said, I'll teach you some English if you'll teach me some Farsi. And she's a fluent Farsi speaker now, which is awesome. But she, um, the two of them basically found that, uh, what I should mention is that people are waiting. And you can imagine when you can't work and you're stuck somewhere, you know, one of the hardest mental health spaces to be in is that unknown and the limbo period of how long am I going to be here? Um, there's one meal a day right now served in the camp. So it's, it's uh, people are living in containers that are uh, containership containers. And, you know, what I would say are sort of wedding, you know, the plastic wedding tents on a smaller scale um, mm-hmm. are the, the accommodation. So, um, so you can imagine uh, it's really important to have something to do that feels purposeful and um, and healthy and connected to community. And so over the five years, Estelle has built this amazing organization called Yoga and Sport with Refugees. And they do about eight different sports plus operate a gym. And, um, and we have, you know, hundreds of people from the camp come and do everything from Muay Thai boxing to soccer to um, volleyball and um, 
and just staying fit. Um, there's women, women's only fitness classes, which are really important in the cultural context that we were working in. And, um, and the, the premise of the organization is that all of the sports should be coached by refugees, um, that refugees are not hopeless, helpless people. They're incredible, fully formed, resilient, amazing people with tons of assets that, um, you know, and so we had, you know, a, a soccer star from a country who is um, coaching the soccer team from Sierra Leone and uh, an amazing boxing coach from Afghanistan. And, um, but the trick with swimming is that there really weren't a lot of swimmers in the group. Uh, and so, uh, so I had the opportunity to go and basically train coaches in a trauma-informed approach to teaching swimming, uh, particularly with folks who've had um, really harrowing experiences in the water. Ah. Oh, so this is this is fascinating to me because I think yeah. early on, I mean, I know this now, but I think early on I thought, oh, Becky's going to go over there and teach prospective refugees who are going to need to swim to asylum how to swim. Um, but these people had already made a crossing of some <clears throat> yeah. variety and might have been traumatized by that and might not have ever been taught how to swim before. So imagine that. Imagine getting yeah. in, a, in a leaky raft yeah. and not knowing how to swim. That's even yeah. crazier. Yeah. Uh, not crazy. Crazy is the wrong adjective, yeah. right? It's yeah. even braver. Yeah. Braver. Uh, more courageous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in, in many of these cases, these swimming lessons, you're dealing with people who probably have the fear of God about getting in the water. Absolutely. And have literally seen friends drown and, or family yeah. members in front, in front of them. So the courage to even show up, um, and maybe it's an obvious point, but we didn't have a pool. So we're learning in the ocean. Right. Um, <laughs> we got to set up the scene because, uh, you know, Greek this is not Corfu or, you know, some of the Santorini, like we, um, we had a, we called it the AB beach because the AB supermarket sits at the top of the hill and um, there's goats running on our beach with goat droppings everywhere and uh, graffiti on the walls. And then you have this beautiful water and it's like um, old uh, sort of decrepit uh, factory that's been closed down. And so in this context, people are getting back in that, that water that, um, that they just made a really heroic voyage across. And, uh, and, you know, we were starting for most people from the very beginning, um, including if you're floating on your back, how do you put your feet down and like feel comfortable standing up in the water? So I had women just grabbing my neck, holding on. So holding oh. on in the way that, you know, if you're familiar with working with people who've experienced trauma, that um, we're tackling multiple layers of things beyond, um, beyond just the swimming here. So um, it was extraordinary. And um yeah, it was just uh, I have so many stories I could tell, but but that's really the um, the key to it is just helping people reconnect with the water and understanding also the the camp is sitting right on the water and it's 100 degrees and obviously no cooling system and so to be able to actually swim off the shore of the camp to cool off is um, is a huge thing and for moms and dads to. Uh, I mean, one of their most fearful things is having kids. We all, those of us who have kids know that terrifying age of three or four where the little ones think they can swim. 
mm-hmm. and um, have more confidence than they should. And uh, and parents, you know, are too scared to go in and get oh, raped to their wow. kids. So, so this had layers upon layers of um, <laughs> really, you know, both safety benefit, but also um, joyfulness and wow. overcoming uh really amazing experiences in the past and healing. Um, I have a dumb question. No questions. Dumb. Is there, right. uh, see, that's one thing I've never believed right, right, right. <laughs> or maybe misplaced. I don't know. Someone uh, but else again, has this question. That's why when I ask a question, watch the way he looks at me when I ask a question, there's another one. So yeah, right. look, if this comes across as dumb, like I said before, I'll edit this shit out. No problem. Um, are there any NGOs that are teaching people on the pre-crossing side how to swim? Yeah, it's such a good question. Not to my knowledge. And I actually thought about that, um, well, you know, what that would look like to go do this in Turkey as an example. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, <laughs> I I see a need for this absolutely everywhere, including here in the U.S. And, uh, um, but but that is definitely on my mind. I'm, I'm not aware of that. And even what um, YSR is doing, I, I don't think there's other NGOs that we've found that are doing this. This episode of If You've Come This Far is brought to you by Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in Chicago's beautiful Bowmanville neighborhood. How often are are refugees leaving the island and trying to make their way to the mainland? I mean, yeah, it's constant. So there's been four thousand five hundred people who've come just since January to Lesbos across the water. Um, yeah, it's it's thousands per year, and yeah. uh, at the height of it was in the hundreds of thousands. But now yeah. now it's sort of tapered off. There's been a a lot of um, uh, well, different agreements between Turkey and the EU to try to to reduce the the influx of migrants, and so some of those policies, like taking the meals in the camp down to one a day, as an example, there there are a number of policies that are intended to be deterrents and mm-hmm. uh, uh, hugely problematic from a humanitarian standpoint, in my perspective. And mm-hmm. uh, but um, yeah, but it's about ten thousand a year right now. Yeah, and and so have you worked with? Um, people who've experienced trauma in the past as well. I mean, you, you, the way you talk about it, it sounds like it's something you've done before, at least yeah. that, that aspect it, of it. I think I had, I've, I've been, um, I've been paying attention to the topic for a long time mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, sort of personally thinking about it, uh, you know, on, on personal fronts, but also thinking about uh, particularly in the job that I did in the early childhood organization, um here in Denver uh we we had a very explicit focus on trauma informed practice which was necessary mm-hmm. for not only the 2 and 3 and 4 year olds we were working with but our teachers our um parents and caregivers uh so mm-hmm. so that was a a deep dive and then essentially co-traveling with these families through covid um, and frankly, making mistakes as a leader that, you know, where I just wasn't as conscious of, um, you know, how I framed uh, how we were going to keep paying teachers through uh, 
through a time when we didn't know if we would have, um, you know, the money to pay our teachers and just learning from my colleagues, like introducing any sense of uncertainty in this kind of context is, has an outsized effect negatively. And so what can we do to give people clarity, straight talk, and also um, not leave a lot of open questions about mm -hmm. This may or may not happen. You may or may not get a paycheck. So you know. So that's just one small example. But um, but yes, absolutely yeah. had a uh, a crash course um, in trauma informed practice. And then I thought a lot about I even when I I started coaching swimming when I was twelve, I think eleven or twelve. And oh, okay. A number of the kids that I coached. I, I grew up in Arizona, so I had. Um, a few different three and four year olds who had been scraped off the bottom of the pool and resuscitated and then needed to learn to swim after drowning. And, uh, wow. and so without knowing that I was, um, engaging in trauma informed teaching, I was yeah. that as a 12 year old. So it's been, a yeah, mind. I do want to say this about Becky for your benefit, Sean, and for people who may just think, oh, here's this like amazing swimmer who just had this amazing, you know, amazing experience this summer. But Becky's got about probably almost what, three decades of really impactful, I would have said successful, but we're trying to, uh, we're trying to get away from that, but like, like really it. impactful career in the education space. Right. Um, she co-founded a nonprofit with, with Manisha actually, that still exists where, and, and where I want to go. Well, first, and I'll, I'll, I'll edit this out, Becky, if you don't feel comfortable, but I want to share two texts that you sent me mm. from, from over there. Um, and they are really moving. Uh, God, I'm sorry. You said, oh, so sorry. I don't know why I'm getting so emotional, but, but I'll just share one. You said of the experience, it's brought me back to life. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is like, how, like, and you talked about this, but how does it shape um, yeah. How does it shape the way you think about, you know, not about parenting, but about what you're going to do with the rest of your professional life? <laughs> oh, I am. I'm still like listening to the universe for the many, many tentacles of this that I seem to be. And I, I can give some examples. They seem to be happening on a daily basis because I'm paying attention. But in terms of coming back to life, I mean, I think, you know, I mentioned I had a really uh, you know, dark days. Um, and I, yeah, I struggled with depression at different points in my life, but, you know, had a really rough, rough bout of it, uh, last fall. And, uh, and really, I think what is at the core for me is that I would have said even probably, I don't know if I would have had the words, but probably at eight or nine years old that, you know, my purpose on the planet is to work, um, with the power of goodness and love or work toward creating the beloved community or being a part of uh, the beloved community. And um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, experiences along the way, even as a little girl that reinforced that that was my calling and how was I going to express that? And I think just, uh, you know, a lot of the events of 2019 to 2022 had me, and I know so many millions of people really questioning the fundamental goodness or humanity in our country, on the planet, um, existential questions about our planet's health and ability to sustain um, life on the planet. And I think it just for someone who wants to believe or who's always held on to that, that 
vision, um, I was questioning whether it was, you know, 30 years of work in this field and what is it adding up to? And I just had such an, um, profoundly negative orientation toward what was possible. And, uh, I think within myself, the, the biggest piece of this, uh, and I, I remember saying to my therapist or working with her before leaving, uh, was that when I have worked in, uh, places that are, um, rife with a lot of trauma, my response to that, combining that grinding swimming spirit and the commitment to excellence was if I am not as this incredibly blessed and privileged woman, white woman in this country, uh, you know, if I'm not taking on everyone's trauma, then I'm not like hooking arms with people in, in an authentic way. And what I did in that approach was deplete myself to the point of, you know, really huge physical and mental health setbacks and, um, and then continue to sort of subconsciously give myself the badge saying, okay, well, that's what it takes to do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone else is dealing with the the people I'm working with are dealing with so much more. So this is the least I can do to, to take on some of their suffering. And, um, and what I, what my goal for going to Greece was um, how to find, can I find a place where I can find compassion and joy in the midst of suffering? And and I did a lot of work and an incredible therapist. And she said, why don't we try on this concept of um, you, you lean so hard into empathy that it literally physically takes over your being. And, uh, and what if you think about a distinction between empathy and compa- compassion and could dip into empathy long enough to be in someone's story, to listen, to hold space for them, to be present with what they have experienced and come back to compassion where you're holding yourself in a place where you can continue to fill your cup and show up as uh you know a representative of of the friendly universe and you know abundance and and joy and health and I didn't know that was possible until I went to Greece this summer and I lived it. I've, I don't think I've ever had a more fulfilling or happier month in my entire life, which is amazing to say. And I got to see people in their two or three hours of their most um, joyful part of the day. And, you know, we played beach volleyball together four nights a week and just live, you know, I lived on about $10 a day there. And I've, I've just never felt more fulfilled and um, grounded and connected. And so it's, um, that's, that's a long, long road into that um, reflection. But I think that that's been a big piece of it for me. And I've been doing a lot of work in meditation, mindfulness, you know, the book of joy, you know, trying, how does the Dalai Lama manage this, uh, you know, or Desmond Tutu? I mean, there's so many amazing mindful leaders who found a way to hold compassion without it crushing their being. And um, that's my work right now. We did, uh, Sean and I did with our good friend, Todd Adams, we did an episode of this podcast about some of the teachings of the late professor father himes who i had in college and he wrote a book that i leaned on a lot in my early days it was called doing the truth in love and i always i always really um i love this quote where he said not everyone's mother teresa 
right? So not everyone has to give up everything to feed the poor of Calcutta. And in many cases, that's not what we're cut out for or built for or skilled to do or whatever. So, so that makes sense to me. Yeah. I also want to say that Eddie Murphy's 75 year estimate, that doesn't apply to us. We're all going to live to be a hundred. And so given that you have five more decades, maybe not five more working decades, but let's call it three and a half more working decades. What are you thinking? Like, I know that you're mm -hmm. grappling with this, like what, what, like what's the latest, what's the best ideas? I I'm excited. I, you know, I feel like it's such a, such a time marker from a year ago at this time, but I feel like I'm, uh, all of these things as often happens again, when you sort of open yourself up to, to possibilities, um, are just flowing in. So I, I, and I, I wasn't sure if this is going to be a, a patchwork quilt or a portfolio of different things that seem very disconnected to the untrained eye, but to me are really, really linked, but um, I've got, you know, I've got focus in really three areas right now. And one of those is um, getting a, a business or a new advisory practice off the ground to work with people. Um, I think it'll be probably particularly middle-aged people um, and uh, couples and others who are empty nesting, you know, to really think about how to cultivate their purpose and uh, and then express that through their time and their philanthropic giving. And I think there's a lot of philanthropic advising that's relatively transactional. And I think um, what could be possible here, um, I, I just know, you know, I built relationships in a month that have me doing things that um, where I am treating the people I met as my family. Like I, I'm, and I can share a few of those examples, but um, but I, we have to be in relationship with people and, um, there's so few opportunities, you know, to even get to know people down the street, much less, you know, mm. a Syrian refugee on the other side of the world. And so, so that's a piece of this is, um, yeah, I'm thinking of it, it's change maker giving, but essentially how do we, how do we help people have these kinds of experiences and then, um, and then get money off the sidelines and out of donor advised funds and working on um, our biggest challenges that um, that need all of us leaning in. So so that's when I, I'll continue to do some really inspiring project work. And I'm working with a phenomenal uh, professor at Cornell right now named Tony Burrow studies the way young people cultivate purpose in their lives. And uh, he does an amazing podcast on the the Hidden Brain podcast. If anyone wants to dip into Tony's work, uh, but but that's been um, a dream. And with a group called the Hope Lab out in San Francisco to really mm -hmm. think about how do we how do we create um, spaces where young people can cultivate that sense of purpose. And um, and then the swimming is healing is such a theme for me and. I'll continue to coach here in Denver, but um, you know it's already led to some some interesting tentacles through through the Aspen Institute. I met a woman who's leading the reconciliation work in Colombia, uh, and she asked if you know could we come and sort of do swimming with the you know the perpetrators and the magistrates and the um, you know yeah. before their their trial processes to sort of be in their bodies before mm. into this re reconciling space. So I feel like these, these threads are going to build into something really interesting. I'm super psyched to get these video. I mean, these are like 
homegrown. We took one of my uh, friends who speaks Farsi, two friends who speak Arabic. We went out to this beautiful beach called Golden Beach with a group and, you know, started filming bit by bit how to how to teach swimming and translating into Arabic and Farsi. So when I get those, you know, just out, Mason's, of course, my internal tech advisor here. Helping me. <laughs> we, all need them. we all need them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think I think it's interesting, Chris, that you ask about, okay, so what are, you know, type A personalities and you've got 50 years ahead, you know, what are you going to do? And uh, I think what's interesting in what Becky talks about is, you know, just being open to and and aware of what's getting presented to us on a daily basis so that and and being in the moment so that we can appreciate what might be presented to us and how we want to act on it rather than being so ingrained in the next lap, let's say, um, that we miss it. And, yeah. and, you know, who's to know what, what that would be. Um, and I, and in just on that vein, Becky, I'm, I'm curious, I'm a big advocate of mindfulness as well. And, and, um, you know, I guess I would ask you is, is having that regular practice, has that been a dramatic difference for you in, Absolutely. in kind of this attitude? Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I, I went to a, a sort of crash course, with like some of the, some of the mindfulness greats last, uh, last year in Costa Rica, the day after I left my job and Jack Hornfield and, you know, Dan Siegel, it was amazing for me, but uh, needing to connect to the sort of science and intellect of it with, you know, millennia old wisdom. Um, it was a combo of neuroscience and mindfulness and yep. in a beautiful place. And I got to surf and be in the water every day and, and then learn these practices, which, um, you know, I, I'd say headline, like absolutely life-changing. I'm a total novice. And with that, like, you know, I've had panic attacks all my life and I've basically figured out how to, uh, manage my way through that, through breathing. And, you know, I can, I can, stop them before they happen now yeah that's great like wild so yeah. yeah when you started talking about being in a relationship and connection i knew i'd be i think you won sean over earlier in the call but I like you're talking sean's language now because i think that's our our men's group men living is very much rooted in connect in connection um, for all the reasons you mentioned for finding purpose for um, peer support mental health issues so um, I really uh, appreciate that I want to point out that we have five minutes till the hour do do you guys have a hard stop no I'm good okay so maybe if we go over a little bit because I want to yeah. explore one other thing that I've always wanted to ask Becky about <laughs> not going to make me cry one might listen to our conversation up to this point and think. Oh, Becky never lost a swimming race. <laughs> Becky, yeah, right? I know a little bit about, you You know, some probably lessons in adversity that you took from swimming. I, I My recollection is that you came close to um, being on the Olympic team. Can, can you can you talk about those types of lessons that you maybe brought from, from your swimming career? I'm sure. And it, it's, it's a funny thing because I... Uh, you know, adversity is obviously in context and all relative. And, you know, after sure, sure. The, the last couple of months, uh, yeah, I, I think about, you know, maybe just where were those places to learn some lessons through this process, but you know, swimming, 
<laughs> there's a few sports like swimming and long distance running and a few others where there's a lot of training for very little gratification. <laughs> it's like you're literally slogging away for nine or 10 months waiting for a two minute race. And, uh, and so, it, it, or, and if you take that over a 15 or 20 year competitive swimming career, it's, you know, it's a lot. And, um, so you have to be, uh, in for the training, but in for the relationships that you're building, which are still, you know, my, I'm going to see my teammates um, out in Massachusetts in, in, a, in a month for a reunion. And, uh, you know, they're still my sisters on this earth. They're, they're people that um, will be always um, in deep relationship, but yeah, but I absolutely, I, I remember when I didn't make, um, when I didn't make the Olympic team, that was, you know, super frustrating and uh felt like the end like somehow the the lack of validation at that last step of the career and it was my last race I was retiring after that um you know for that to not turn out the way I had hoped was um you know was was super disappointing and I I you know this is gonna sound crazy but I got um I got the silver medal at, at the NC2A championship one year and I remember feeling like Oh, am I always going to be not, you know, I'm the second fastest swimmer in the country right now, but, oh, I'm always going to be the silver, silver, silver medalist. Um, you know, am mm. I ever going to be on top? And, um, yeah, so just grappling, I think it's just more of the life lessons of, uh, putting that in perspective and, you know, it does lead to a serious work ethic. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> To, no dumb we questions. Hey, tell us about all your losses. No, that's, mean, nice. that's nice. That's nice, Chris. Tell us about all your losses. Wow, that's a big, a big question. Well, but to be, I, I know I'm not the only person who wonders how people deal with coming so close. Um, I don't know if you know this, Becky, but our podcast is named after a quote from the movie Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if it was from that or maybe from Moneyball, where 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 there's a lesson about how some people come so close. Um, uh, and so that's kind of where I'm going with that. Like, like, look, we're not all Mother Teresa, and we're not all Michael Phelps, right? So, right, um, right. so, and and I think you know, yeah, adversity comes on the spectrum of of adversity. Getting second in NCAA's or just missing the Olympic team is not like you know being in that leaky raft. Yeah, um, right, so right. I don't want yeah. to mischaracterize any of this, but I just think it's fascinating to me, at least. It's just opportunities. Yeah. For too. There's so much um, in that. I think it's it's one of the reasons we need to, you know, have kids involved in sports or involved in these different kinds of pursuits where it isn't constant gratification and instant gratification. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just yeah. you got to work for something that you you don't win every day and it's um because it's obviously life <laughs> yeah. i actually have an education question oh, yeah. oh i'm sorry for for you and and chris wayne as well so in uh uh richard reeves wrote a book of boys and men and and in his book he he proposes that um boys get red shirted that they they should um start school a year later than girls because their brains develop um slower than women not only as children but throughout our lives um, I'm, that's, I'm just adding adding that in that's, um, your, that's, your, that's, that's, fine. That's, that's me 
Uh, so just curious from, from you two, does that, does that make sense to you as, as folks that have been involved in education for a long time? Does that sound reasonable off what makes sense? What doesn't curious? Chris, I'd be curious because you're, you're probably more proximate to people doing some really innovative work right now, but my, my headline on it is that the way we've structured schools for the last 150, 200 years actually doesn't work well for anyone. and you know, and and girls are culturally typically, um, uh, how, if we're in the Barbie movie zone now, I don't know, but, you know, are more, yeah. more compliant and more um, deferential to, if this is the, the steps I need to march through, I'm going to march through these. And uh, I, obviously huge generalizations here, but, but I would just say that we actually, rather than red shirting boys, we need to rethink the design of schools completely. Yeah. And, yeah. If schools were um, connecting to kids, cultivating their sense of purpose, putting them in the driver's seat of their learning, hands-on, rolling up their sleeves, getting engaged in real questions that they have, um, I've you know I've had the incredible gift and blessing of uh, seeing some of these schools and having my son go from a very traditional school to a middle school that was uh, where he was in the driver's seat in a big way you know, for two thirds of his day and it's, it's radical. So, uh, and it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so that's yeah. my headline on that. Like, let's not try to reject and, and sure, you know, that we're learning a ton about brain development and that sort of thing. So I'm not, I'm not setting that aside, but I just think we've got the model completely wrong and the forces of the systems are, um, preserving the model, uh, yeah. far beyond its, its useful life. Becky is a bona fide education expert. The only expertise I bring to your question, Sean, is that experience I have as a slow developing male. Um, so, so I'm on the business side of this work, and I don't I don't have much to say. And what Becky said makes a ton of sense. Um, we could have a whole another hour long conversation about education. Um, I right. wish we had more time. I would love to hear your perspective these days on AI and education. I don't know if you, Becky, if you saw mm. Sal Khan's presentation of what the Khan Academy is doing with AI. I haven't yet. It's fascinating. Known. And it's a whole nother conversation. So maybe we'll say that for another time. I was going to say, um, my friend, Michelle Culver is the one you want on. <laughs> She's yes. been the innovation lab for years now. And it's just, um, is thinking deep, uh, deeply about these and particularly around the ethical issues and, um, in education, but I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know that in our lifetime, we're going to see, um, you know, the changes that, probably we would all like to see. Um, I mean, so, you know, anytime there's so much money in, in the mix, it it gets hard, right? Yeah. Um, to make significant change, I think. I, I will say this, you talk about ethical issues. I was on a, 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 a really informative call yesterday about AI and education, and the, the subject came up of ethical risk and perhaps some sort of racist, misogynistic biases that that make their way into large language models, right? Because those things are based on what they learn from what's out there. And what's out there is a lot of racism and misogyny and um, uh, and, and all sorts of unethical stuff. So uh, we do, I mean, everyone knows this. I'm not saying anything that's new to anybody, but we got to, we, we want to be careful, but also it's an immovable force, right? Like we're, yeah. no one's, 
no one's going to shut AI down. So um, didn't mean to take us down that rabbit hole. No, No, um, Chris, I was, and and Sean, I was going to share just back on the, you know, not everybody needs to be a a Mother Teresa and sort of a call to action. I just, I I believe deeply my, uh, you know, I always think my purpose in life is connecting people and ideas to, to move toward the beloved community in ways that we didn't even know were possible often without these different relationships. And I just wanted to mention a couple things. If the, if the conversation has sparked interest around refugees, there's, there, there are different ways to get involved. And number one is, you know, if, if folks are loving sports and, or teaching um, and want to spend a month on a beautiful Island in Greece, um, the organization is always looking for volunteers, uh, it needs to be a minimum of a month because we don't want people popping in and out from a relational standpoint. And uh, and um, if you have, you know, a 23 year old who's super motivated to do humanitarian work and get an incredible experience, um, I was by far the oldest. I was old enough to be everybody's mom for sure. Some of the Sudanese guys called me Mama Becky. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, but I just wanted to, yeah, to share that, um, you know, over 21 year olds, uh, you know, are definitely needed at yoga and sport at any of the four locations. And the other piece is there's a new program and I'm finding very few people have heard about it. It just launched in, um, in January through the state department called the welcome core. And this is, I think modeled after Canada's really successful refugee resettlement program, but five uh, neighbors can, or a team of five families in a community can get together or through your faith location or you name it, your men's group um, to essentially sponsor a refugee uh, family to resettle in your community. And it's an incredible program. It's been this first phase um, matching people um, who don't know the families coming over. So it's a it's a random matching process, but um, you help with things like going with a family to help them get signed up at Chicago Public Schools and figuring out, you know, how to build a credit history for rental and, um, you know, what happens on Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. and what can I learn about your cultures and finding translators and um, so it's really an amazing program, and in hopefully later this year, phase two is going to start where you can sponsor specific people. So, so when you ask where where is my heart and head in the coming months and years, um, I'm I've made some friends um, who want to be here in the U.S. from Eritrea, from Afghanistan, and um, and I'm going to be putting together welcome core teams to support them to make that transition and. Um, it, it's just, uh, you know, their hope and belief in the, the possibilities of this country are, um, you know, it, for all the time I've spent being frustrated that we're not living into our, um, ideals and haven't for 400 years. Um, there are a lot of people who believe it's possible. And I think we need that energy and perspective in our communities. And so um, you can see the, the Welcome Corps websites on the State Department and and specifically I have a dear friend who um, who lost his leg when he was 14. Um, he's turning 26 in a few weeks uh, from Afghanistan. And he's an extraordinary, extraordinary wise, um, dear person. And so working on um, finding him the medical care, he hasn't been refit 
for his prosthetic in many years. And so um, that's the other network piece that I'm working on is um, getting mm-hmm. introduced to amputee coalitions and um, different folks, both in the EU and here, who could help with the medical situations. So this reminds me, Sean. So Becky, my our next door neighbor who lives four feet that way um, right. is a 60 something lawyer who for the last few decades has only done pro bono work for refugees. And we have a friend and a neighbor who Dwayne helped him and his mother um, uh, get their status in the United States after they immigrated here from, I believe it was Honduras. He lost his leg after been having, having been run over by a train that they were on to get here. Um, The reason I bring that up on this call is because I feel like a lot of the resistance to admittedly complex immigration refugee policy is the result of us not understanding the human story on on the other side. Like exactly. where these people are coming from, what they're running from, what they're hoping for, et cetera. So I love that you got to experience that firsthand. And and to hear, I mean, for all of us, just to put in perspective, you know, my my friend Mahdi is was working as a training the coaches at our organization. And, you know, and he had every this is my friend who needs the new prosthetic, but um I he is so he feels so blessed every day mm. and uh you know the the pay is 50 euros a month and he said i have enough money now to send money back to my sister who's still in afghanistan 13 year old sister and um you know it really like in our context a little can go a very long way toward mm-hmm. really transforming people's lives and um I spent the last year working on teacher shortage issues here in Denver and I thought, oh my gosh, if I could um, you know, <laughs> figure out a teacher visa program to get people here much quicker, we could solve a lot of our talent mm. issues with people with incredible um, resilience and hope and, um, and wisdom and skills. Are you going back anytime soon? Uh, my plan is to go back um, next summer and yeah. Um, and yeah, and I've got a whole bunch of ideas about how yeah. we're going to do this even, even better. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Yeah. yeah. Do you, either of you have anything else before we ask Becky our, our three canned questions? Becky, are you aware of this part of the, the requisite part of this program? I did a little research. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's dive in, then we'll let everyone go. Um, okay, so the first question is, what do you wish you could have tip told your 10-year-old self? Mm. You are enough just as you are, and you don't have to earn love. Mm-hmm. Do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? I do. I mean, I have a couple and one of these will not be surprising to you based on our conversation, but um, the one that I'm constantly saying to myself is it doesn't have to be hard to be worth doing. Mm. And um, and then the other pieces just um, operate from a place of abundant joy and love and that like offering people humanity, dignity, a big smile and authentic connection. Like there is no shortage of that resource and it sounds cliche but I was reminded this summer that when people haven't experienced a lot of dignity um that goes a really long way and it's an overflowing abundant resource so not to 
discount what you just said, but you said something earlier in the call that I want to let people know that there is nothing harder. I bet I don't know any other person in my life who could do 10, 300 flies in a swimming pool. Um, <laughs> so uh, hats off that you were ever able to do that. I had a crazy coach who made me swim a 10,000 butterfly in high school without stopping. So that, that will be my, uh, you know, in the spirit of adversity being a crowning achievement, that that's one of them. <laughs> that's, just, that's, just, that's borderline stupid. Created uh, no <laughs> a lifelong coach. shoulder problem, but yes. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Um, okay, the last question, Becky, is what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Oh, um, I think that she lived with high integrity and on purpose, uh, that she lived in, you know, integrity with her values consistently and, um, that where I was pointed in terms of my purpose is clear to people and, um, mostly clear to myself from a integrity standpoint. And, uh, and also just, I hope people who cross my path experience, you know, some of the overflow of the abundance of of goodness and generosity of spirit and, um, you know, reminding people that that's not a finite resource and it's super contagious. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I don't know if how intentional the phrase was where I was pointed was when you just said it, but that's a really good lesson, right? Like even if you're not, none of us may ever get there, but to be pointed in the right direction is noble. I think maybe what we should all aim for. So Mm-hmm. Becky, it's been too long since I've seen your face or talked to you. I know what a treat. I know. Please give I love a big this. loving squeeze to all those amazing women in your household. So. I definitely will. I definitely will. And thanks for coming on. I love you both. Oh, Great to meet you, Becky. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks for Tom, joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. It was so great. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out, mnliving.org.